Welcome to Season 13 of the Art of Teaching podcast. My name's Matthew Green and I'm so glad that you joined me today. Before we get started with our discussion, I would like to acknowledge the Darawa people, the traditional custodians of this land on which I'm recording, and pay respect to Elders past, present and emerging. I acknowledge the stories, traditions and living cultures of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples on this land. Today I had the great pleasure of sharing a recent conversation that I had with the brilliant Chris Higgins. He is the National Programs Director at the MacKillop Institute. He is also a teacher and a PhD candidate in education, where he researches the role of digital technologies and global competencies in fostering social inclusion and cohesion in Australian schools. He has received multiple awards and recognitions for his curriculum, innovation and leadership. These include the Most Influential Educator Award, the Australian Educational Awards Curriculum Innovation Award finalist, and the AsiaLink Fellowship. Chris was a wonderful guest and it was a privilege to speak to him. I hope that you get as much out of this wide-ranging discussion that I did with the brilliant Chris Higgins. Chris Higgins, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, thanks so much for joining me. Where are you phoning in from? Thank you for for having me here, Matthew. I'm currently phoning in from Melbourne, from the traditional lands of the Wurundjeri, of the Woiwurrung, of the Kulin Nation, and great to be chatting with you today. Fantastic. That is not a Melbourne accent. Where are you uh, originally from? It is shores of Scotland. Yes, yeah, so definitely, definitely not an Australian accent, although my family like to think it is. They definitely tell me it's it's changed, uh, but originally from a small, small town in the west coast of Scotland and haven't been there for about 15 years now. Spent a few years living uh, in other parts of Asia and Southeast Asia and then gradually made my way here and spent the last well, decade here. Yeah, it, it's a it's a tricky accent to lose, isn't it? The Scottish. Oh accent. yes, yes, yes. I was in a little shop, a little milk bar the other day, and the lady in front of me was chatting to the person behind the counter, and I picked up straight away the Scottish accent, picked up the county and everything, had a chat, and she'd been here for fifty five years. Amazing, and I, and I could still pick the accent. I love that. I I, I was born in the UK in a little um. A little uh, sort of a town called Nottingham, or not so little, little city, and it's amazing. And I'm assuming this is the same in Scotland as well. It's an absolutely stunningly beautiful country, Scotland. Is but is it quite? Is the dialect quite regionally based, similar similarly to to the counties in England? Can you can you still pretty much tell where people are from when you hear them? Absolutely, within a. 20 25k radius it will completely change uh, maybe not so much to the to the untrained ear but particularly for someone who's from the area you will hear very distinct differences in the accents and if you go a couple of hundred k so if i went up to the north of scotland very different accent to the extent where i even as a fellow scot may struggle to understand people for the first few hours or the first couple of days yeah big regional differences have you ever researched your uh, your your tartan? Oh well, I don't have one because my ancestry is actually English. So right. yeah, so my my parents actually moved north to Scotland while my mother was pregnant with me. So I'm the only member of my family to be born and raised in Scotland. So unfortunately, I don't have a tartan. Isn't that interesting? Wow. Yeah, I usually borrow someone else's. So if it's a something like a wedding, a, yeah. an event, a celebration, if it's something like a wedding and the family name there that the person is kind of marrying into, like my sister, she married a Scotsman and, and his surname is Stuart. So we used the Stuart Tartan. It feels, it feels uh, interesting at the time when you know you don't have one, but you feel absolutely Scottish through and through. But... That's the interesting thing about about culture. Fantastic, and you are uh, in Melbourne, so a a city which is um, incredibly dear to me. Um, I had the privilege of doing my masters down there, and I, I feel so at home. And as a a, a fellow uh, want to be Melbourneian resident, what's your uh, coffee order for when I can finally oh, dip yes. down, and grab you a coffee? Because yes, it's great coffee culture in Melbourne. Great coffee. Uh, it's always going to be a strong, skinny latte. 
And do you have a, a favorite coffee shop town in Melbourne? Oh, yeah, good question. I don't know if I can pick one. Yeah, I agree. Far too many, far too many. I, I, I make it one of my missions to try as many different ones as possible. So even yeah. at my at my current workplace, I'm slowly working my way through all the coffee shops in the area and trying to find my favorite one, but it's too hard. They all make such good coffee. I, I've got a, a number of favorite ones. One of them is St. Ali. Um, and ah, yes. Um, uh, Seven Seeds, which is next to the Graduate School of Education. And uh, Melbourne always surprises me that you could you could walk down an alleyway and either have the best food of your life or potentially get mugged. You just don't know. Uh, but it, it's a it, it's a really beautiful city, isn't it? And so do you do you feel yeah. at home in Melbourne or? Um, yeah, very very much so. I think I think one of the reasons I ended up settling in Melbourne when I arrived in Australia was because of how multicultural and diverse it was. It felt very inclusive and and i think for someone who had spent many years living away from his born home but traveling and living in other parts of the world and in other countries when i arrived here there was always pockets that felt like a home away from home and it just felt very comfortable very inclusive very safe uh, and and that you could find anything, uh, you know, anything you wanted to find, whether it was a group of people knitting in a pub down an alleyway, or it was a cultural festival, or it was you wanted to, I don't know, suddenly ride a, a motorcycle, then you could find it. Yeah, it was here. I, I love that. And uh, Chris, is there a a book that you've read um, that's caused you to kind of stop and reconsider a few things in your life? It could be within your area of expertise and education. Uh, or it could be more broadly than that. Yeah, it's it's a really good question. And it's definitely not in the realm of education. It may not even be that well known, but one called the Celestine Prophecy. And the Celestine Prophecy is essentially, uh, it's essentially a work of fiction, but it's all about how everything in life is connected. And we never know the ripple effects that we create and, and the entire story is about the the main character the protagonist working his way through life and slowly connecting all of the dots and all of the ripples and then looking back on his life and realizing that it was all connected that it was essentially all pieces of a, of a larger jigsaw that came together and it was reading that that made me look back on and reflect on my own life and realize that all those little pieces were slotting into place and the the steps on the journey that I was taking were all connected and I could right. see potentially where they might go next. Right. That that's really lovely. And 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 I think one of the the, the many gifts I think of, of getting to interview people like yourselves, uh yourself is uh getting a, a really expe- extensive reading list. Um mm-hmm. uh, this podcast uh journey for me has probably cost me thousands of dollars in <laughs> Yes, but um, that's really wonderful. And I think as I'm getting, as I'm getting older and maybe a little bit more reflective in my life, I I think I'm starting to see a lot more of those connections and opportunities that I thought were a waste or a a dead end street or random actually tend to have a purpose. I don't know if I'm just getting a bit more philosophical in my old age, but uh, it's. I, I like, I like to think it's that we notice more that we spend more time to, to notice things and, and notice those little ripples that happen and and can flow out from a situation. Absolutely. And um, Chris, if you could have a, a dinner party with anybody, um, who would you invite? Um, Obviously your family don't count in the head count. um, So it's assumed that they would be there. Um, But who would you love to sit down and have a dinner with um, at the, the responses that people give to this question are really, really, really interesting. So I'd love to hear. Mm. I, I know straight off the top of my head who it would be. It would be Professor Yong Zhao, who is a lecturer in educational leadership at Melbourne Graduate School of Education and also at uh, Kansas. And he he is not only one of the people who I find the most stimulating when it comes to to education and theory and best practice, 
but he is also hilarious. Exactly. I've met him a couple of met him a couple of times online in particular, and I have been equal parts in stitches and crying with laughter and equal parts pausing and stopping and really reflecting and thinking about who I am as an educator. He, um, I, I actually, it's funny you mentioned him. I, I, I'm in the process of writing thank you cards to people that have been on the podcast. So uh, yours will be in the mail. Um, oh, thank you. Uh, thank you. Um, and I actually just wrote one uh, to Yong last night and it's been a while since I had a conversation with him, but um, the episode I did with him, which was quite early on in the process of recording the podcast for me, was so transformative. Um, he is just wonderful and generous and hilarious, and he's a real um, challenger of the status quo, which I find incredibly refreshing. Um, I don't know if I'm not, I'm not trying to plug my own podcast there, but if you haven't had a chance to listen to that conversation, he um he yeah he's a game changer absolute game changer absolutely and and i i completely agree with you that he's not afraid to push the envelope and and say things that often go unsaid and you know i i'm a huge fan of his work in the areas of of capabilities and global competence and the fact that we need to rethink our education system and that we need to rethink um the way we design and create curricula and you know it's for all the decades and decades of reforms nothing much has changed uh, we need to think about it differently and we need to look at it differently and I, I like that he's not afraid to to look at it through that lens yeah I love that and, and we need I think we really need those disruptors um and mm. right we haven't really changed the way that we've done education for a really long time and to hear somebody like Yong um and to hear someone who's been doing it for such a long time but still really cares is is really really wonderful and really refreshing and um i was just wondering chris um what was your upbringing like and and why yeah you decide to to commit a substantial part of your life to education yeah a really good question and where where to start with that one but if i if I take it even from a, a demographic perspective, I grew up in a really impoverished part of Scotland. So, so I talk about a small country town, but I grew up in one of the most socioeconomically deprived areas of Europe. Um, so not even just the UK, for, for the whole of Europe. And where I live, to give you an idea of some of the stats, only one in four homes had an employed person in it so you know you're talking an average of three out of every four homes in the town i grew up with there was not a single employed person in that home so that you know it was huge swathes of the population were living on government benefit systems uh, it was an area where we didn't have a lot. There, there wasn't much to do. There were no services. There was, there was nothing like that. And personally, I grew up in a single parent family with uh, a large single parent family with, with not much. And so for me, education was the key. Doing well at school was my key to a better life. And you know, I took every single opportunity that I possibly could. I didn't go to, you know, the fanciest school. I went to the local free state school and I had amazing teachers that believed in me. I had amazing teachers that pushed me. I am the first and only member of my family to finish high school to go to university and not just go to university, but then to obtain multiple degrees at university and then to go on into a profession. And all of that is thanks to the, the schools that I went to and thanks to the teachers that I had. And, and even just as I was coming towards the end of my schooling, I knew that I wanted to create the same types of opportunities for other young people because it was only by having those opportunities that I was able to change my trajectory and change my life. What do you, what do you think though it was about you though, Chris? Because I'm sure there would have been 28 or 30 other children sitting in those classrooms that, that mm -hmm. respectfully wouldn't have ended up in the positions that you are in. And so was there something... What do you think it was 
was about you because it it can't have just been these amazing teachers because they all would have had them. Um, yeah, were you Look, a stubborn little thing? That <laughs> I would like to say yes. I was a bit of a rat bag. Yeah, wow. I was I was a difficult child. <laughs> I am I am I'm definitely not going. Yeah, I am definitely not going to sit on a, a soapbox and talk about how I was, you know, positive and really enthusiastic about education. I was a naughty, naughty kid. I was, I was a school refuser. Uh, I, you probably even before that was a term. I didn't attend school for a lot of it. I think I didn't. There was a point in about year nine where I didn't go to school for nearly four months, and my poor mother wasn't even aware. Because uh, it was back in the days before the internet and before mobile phones, and it was back when you used to hand in a little note, and I would, I would make sure that there was a little note wasn't necessarily seen or written by my mother. But I, I didn't. Um, I went through phases where I really didn't embrace education and I didn't embrace school. But I had teachers that, through all of that, despite all of that, and also being the 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 kid in the class who was distracting everyone else, who was not paying particularly great attention, I had teachers that still told me they believed in me. Mm. I still had teachers that told me that I could do more. I had teachers that that helped me realize that my behaviors were just that. They were behaviors and they weren't a reflection of who I was as an individual. I had teachers talking to me about those things and saying, you know, what do you want to do? And how do you want to live? And how do you see your life unfolding? So I, mean, I don't think it was necessarily anything about me yeah, as an individual. And if it was, if anything, it was probably yeah. I stuck out for all the wrong reasons, in a sense. Have you had a chance to um, to speak to any of those teachers? And the reason why I ask is um, and thank them is, I had a teacher, and I'll share the episode with you um, mm. later, but a, a teacher that truly made the difference in my life, mm. a lady called um, Mrs. Taylor Jones. And I tell the story every single episode, and my wife is sick of hearing it. Um, but um, I felt like the most important person in her class. And I was going through a family breakdown. It was pretty traumatic, pretty horrible. Um, and every time I worked, walked into her class, I just felt known and valued and heard and seen. And I'm sure she did that for every other student in her class. In fact, we've got a Facebook group dedicated to all of the kids that were in her classes over the years. And they all say the same thing. So I felt like the most important person in the world. And the truth is, yeah, everyone did. And when I went over to her and thanked her many years later, and my mum still lives behind the school in the UK, I just hugged her and cried. And it was this ugly, snotty cry. My wife was next to me and she said, that wasn't cool, but it was just a reminder, I think, of the the incredible power and influence that teachers have. And, and sorry, that was a very long question, but have you had a chance to to go back and 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 thank any of those teachers or yeah. talk to them? It's it's a good question because I haven't for a number of years, but I I have at some point in my adult life. So you know, in case in case she's listening, there's one in particular that always comes to mind. Uh, Miss Maureen Meek was her name, and she was my she was my English teacher when I was in high school. And oh, I think she would take me out of class ten times during a lesson and have a little conversation with me, uh, usually about my choices of behaviour. But she always told me how much she believed in me and she would always get me to see things from a different perspective. And I went back multiple times as an adult to visit her specifically and just to tell her where I was with my life and what I was doing. And she would often hug me and tell me how proud she was of me and, you know, what I was doing with my life and what I was achieving. And we've definitely had a few snotty, teary moments over the years. And it, you know, that's why I continue to tr to do what I do now and try and always remember that there was people who were that person for me. You know, how can I do that for others? You know, how can I do that with young people I might work with directly? Or also, you know, the teachers and the systems that I'm working with these days more regularly, you know, is there any way or what way can I support them to have that impact on someone else? Because you just never know. You just never know what tiny little seeds you plant and, and the ripple effects that they can have. Yeah, it, it's, it really is 
the greatest privilege to to get to shape the minds and to get to shape thoughts and to redefine help rebuild the identities of of, of of kids it's so powerful isn't it and really really quite special and um chris i i was wondering um you mentioned that you were um your mum was a single mum um so i'm going to assume that dad wasn't around um what does it mean for you to be a um a, a, like a male role model in that space because mm-hmm. I know it, it I, I work in I've worked, spent my career working in southwestern Sydney in some quite challenging areas and mm-hmm. for me it's a whole different um privilege to be a, a male role model of some of my kids who many of them don't have dads or they don't have uncles or they yeah, yeah but anyway, what's that like for you to be that positive male role model especially to some of those kind of young men that you've taught along the years I I, I... I definitely have always taken it very, very seriously. And I'm very aware that everybody's family and home life is very different. We don't, you know, there is no mold. Um, We don't know what somebody else's family life looked like. That could be, you know, a single mother, a single father. It could be, you know, two mothers, two fathers. It could be uncles, aunties, grandparents they live with. It could be a carer. It could be a foster carer. We just don't know um, but one thing that has always stuck with me as well is that I still have a place as a male, as an older male in a classroom in front, in front of other young males to set an example of what it is to be uh, an emotional, uh, sensitive, a caring man. And, and I've always led from a place of compassion and a place of kindness um, I would like to say, hand on heart, that no student has ever seen me angry, has ever seen me particularly frustrated, that they have seen me with, you know, warmth and compassion and, and love and care. And, you know, I, I would take every opportunity to do all the extracurricular stuff and, and go on camps. And they've seen me laugh wholeheartedly they have seen me cry to be fair I would cry at an advert Um, but they have seen me express a full range of emotions just as you would expect from other emotionally intelligent socially minded human relationship centered person Um, you know it's what I would want to see from any positive adult and role model in anyone's life and so I want to try and be an example of that for, for all young people, but particularly um, for some of the young men out there to try and, and move us just an inch by inch away from maybe some of that toxic masculinity that does exist in our society. And, you know, we need to acknowledge that it's there. We still have horrific rates in this country of um, you know, violence in, in close intimate relationships and in dating violence. And, you know, it's not always male to female, but it predominantly is, you know, the stats are there. We, we do have challenges around these things. And yeah, so I take that, I take that place seriously. Yeah. I love that. And, and it's, I mean, Chris, it's quite the journey, isn't it? From uh, a sort of a little town in um, Scotland to a, a, a school refuser, refuser, sorry, to a, um, to someone who yeah, just didn't have a great experience, especially initially at school, to being named um, by the educator as the most influential educator and then studying uh, yourself as a PhD candidate. It's, it's quite the journey, isn't it? Like, do you think, yeah. looking back, do you think it, could you imagine that you'd be doing what you're doing now? Um, are your friends doing this? Was it just a very, was it a great cohort of kids in Scotland or was it... <laughs> um bizarre isn't it really yeah look sometimes I do look back and pinch myself a little bit and and go wow how did this little lad from this little town in Scotland end up living in Melbourne in a a director's role and and an education not-for-profit now working with schools all across Australia and, and teachers and young people all across Australia and doing a PhD sometimes I go is that me am I actually doing that um and there's real imposter syndrome you know i've i've learned that as i as i've gone through different roles that there there is imposter syndrome it is a thing we all feel it even the professors and the doctors and the people standing up on the stage that we're listening to they all have it they all have imposter syndrome 
And so, yeah, I do, I do look back and think that sometimes, but at the same time, exactly as we said, and com coming full circle back to the start of this conversation, I also look back and can clearly see how it was all connected and how one thing naturally led to the next one and the next one. And it's all been essentially a series of connected events that have been opportunities that have presented themselves and have taken, or they've been opportunities that I've made happen because it seemed like the next logical step. Yeah. Um, yeah, but it does, it is, you know, I think it is a good reminder of there is so much you can create. There is so much you can create for yourself. There's so much you can create in your life's journey and your path and not just your professional one or your career or your edu education, yeah. but also in your, your personal lives and your relationships. And uh, yeah, there, there's a lot of that that we have some form of control over and yeah. what choices we make. That's really interesting. And and, and tell me um, tell me about the McKillop Institute. Yes. What's your role? I know you're you're the director there, but for those people that haven't heard of this incredible organization, give us a bit of a snapshot and tell us why why are you doing this right now? At yeah. This yeah, no, great, great question, Matthew. And, and, and you know, this is a relatively new role for me. So I've yeah. I've only recently joined the the McKillop Institute, and they are doing some incredible powerful uh, and very very critical work with young people and educators all across Australia and I, the institute itself is essentially the, the sharing arm of McKillop Family Services which is a much bigger community services organization and McKillop Family Services is, has been around for over 100 years uh, we work with children young people and families all across Australia and it's very much around promoting um, child safety, family safety, uh, and promoting healthy, positive communities. And, and there's a range of different ways that we do that. We, we help operate residential care homes. We help support um, and get in foster parents for some of our young people. Uh, we have a range of different services, such as even an animal assisted education program where we work with um, young people who need some social emotional support. So we've got a whole range of programs that we run directly in the community. And what we've done with the Institute, which is relatively new, just the last couple of years, is we wanted to share that. We wanted to share what we are doing. We are only one organization. We are only one community services organization. We're pretty big. Um, we're one of Australia's biggest ones, but we're one of many. Um, and we're one of many doing some amazing work that we, we know is, is having an impact. We believe in evidencing and researching everything. So we have university partners all over Australia that helps um, evaluate and evidence all of our programs. And we're essentially now just taking that out broadly to other organizations, anyone that wants to find out more about what we do and how we do it. Um, that's through the Institute. So we share all of our practice and all of our knowledge and all of our evidence with other people. And we're doing that with a couple of main programs at the moment, which are really in, in the education and school space. So, so we have um, one that's all about helping prevent um, child um, sexual harm. Um, we have another one which is all about uh, whole school cultural models and promoting really positive cultural models. And it's all coming from a trauma-informed lens and our experience operating our own schools because we operate our own schools and it's literally how we have designed uh, and run our own schools and we're just sharing that with others uh, and then we have some like our animal assisted education program as well which where we we talk about our specialized approach um, to using animals uh, with facilitators and trainers and young people so it's really just about sharing our knowledge and and our practice with others to work together collaborate and, and create even greater impact because we we want to change the, the world we want to change it for the better we want to change it specifically for our children and our young people and our families and we know we need to do that alongside others and walk that journey together and so this is our way of of sharing it out and i am just one little tiny part of that working with a phenomenal team of people out there doing this amazing work um, uh, and sharing it and i i feel very privileged every right. moment of every day since i have been there to be able to help share that work out broadly with with other organizations, schools, um, community. Yeah. And Chris, I feel like we could do a whole podcast um, on the McKillop. Yeah. 
there is just so much happening and it's a organization that i've been following um like i said it's it's a relatively new um yeah. so, um but what it's doing is really um really quite inspiring and and as the yeah. director what do you see as your primary role i'd love you to talk a little bit about um how you view leadership um what you feel your role is as a director at the mckillop institute and also do you feel like that notion of leadership is um changing or evolving or adapting or to, it's a very broad question there but but what sort of is your primary role at the institute and how would you define leadership yeah like so one of those uh ceos that's wearing a suit sitting in an office um telling people what to do you seem like a very different type of leader but yeah i'll let you unpack that Paul. yeah well i think probably the first part of that to acknowledge is that, that i'm i'm one of a team so we have a team of directors and we all have slightly different roles and responsibilities but we work together yeah. it's it's very democratic it's very collaborative we we have an organization that lives and breathes what it does uh, you know we believe in supporting people by working together and collaborating and communicating and that is literally how we do it so you know i am just one of a few directors at the institute and and across the wider organization who work together in a very collaborative collegiate communicative way to to help lead that that organization and so i think to, to answer the second part of that leadership for me is very much about working together and working as part of a team and using each other's strengths and supporting each other through that and it's you know i've always believed in that approach of a good leader leads from behind um so i've always been the kind of person that's kind of behind the scenes trying to encourage others notice the strengths in others and and really bring them to the fore and encourage them and support them and and give them the the ability to take opportunities and and i think that you know mckillop reflects that beautifully and we have a ceo who is just absolutely wonderful and 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 operates every day like that as well encouraging other people um encouraging everyone to sit around the table and talk uh, and we actually have a, a really fantastic model we, we use called the sanctuary model uh, and it's a model for the way we approach everything it's how we approach our meetings it's how we approach conversations it's how we approach our day uh, and it's about being very open with each other and collaborative and structuring our conversations in a particular way and it has been a breath of fresh air to be in an organization that genuinely genuinely values collaboration and the well-being of everyone and that everyone is important and that everybody is an important part of the discussions and the process and you know i think certainly for me it's always been my approach and i think even more so as, as i get older as well is that that version of leadership as someone in a power suit at a desk basically just delegating tasks it's not good leadership it's not good leadership it's not effective leadership it's not efficient leadership and i think we know that and i think the the perception of that is slowly shifting and changing and when we work in such relation-based professions you know everything we do as educators is actually about a relationship with other people it's about a relationship with other educators with the young people you know together how can we every minute of every day be in a profession that is based on our relationships if we don't then lead through real positive relationships as well and the way we interact and and, and work with each other yeah I love that, Chris. There's um, there's there's so much in that, and I think um, uh, the importance of authenticity, um, of active listening, of kindness. These are all qualities which I think you embody wonderfully. Uh, I mean, we're not. Um, I wish we were sharing the video of this because it was so lovely to see you light up when you talk about the power of connection and community and, and leadership and values, um, which is really. Um, really really inspiring and um uh, chris I'm, I'm going to ask you a, a, a bit of a um a bit of a personal question but mm -hmm. what areas do you think 
um, of leadership do you find most challenging? Is there something that you're trying to work on? I know personally, mm. I'm great at the big picture stuff. I'm like, guys, we're going over there. I don't know how we're going to get there and I don't know how to execute, but we're going that way. And so one of the challenges that I find is I get really excited about big things, but then I forget that I actually have to have a plan. I don't know if you can relate, but what are some of the things that you find kind of challenging or some areas in your own leadership that you're kind of working on a little bit? Yeah, look, look, there's two. There's two for me, definitely. And there are things that I have been working on over my few years in leadership roles. But but one is delegating tasks. Mm -hmm. I find it very difficult, even in the most politest possible way. I find it very difficult to ask other people to do a task if I know that it might actually be an extra thing for them or it might add to their workload. I'm the kind of person who will end up piling things on my own plate and working 16 hour days, seven days a week if it means that my colleagues can finish at five and yeah. go home to their family. You know, I'm, I'm the guy who will take on a lot of burden and will have massive impact on my own self-care if it's for the benefit of others. Um, and I think that's where it comes back to that relational stuff. And so, you know, the, the wonderful thing is, uh, you know, I'm in an organization that knows that. Uh, we're very open about it. That's part of our model and part of our discussions. And I have a fantastic team of, of colleagues that actually check in on me on that. You know, they check in on me and be like, right, you know, have you delegated something today? You know, have you made sure that you're going to finish at five today? Because um, we talk about what those areas for development are and we support each other and we give each other advice. Uh, you know, have you tried this, Chris? And, you know, and, that, and the other one, which um, is just a, a kind of longer term leadership journey, is, is very much performance management. I, I really don't enjoy those difficult conversations. I mean, I don't think anyone does. And, you know, and I've gone on plenty of courses where they're like, here's how you should structure those conversations. And here's how you can start with, you know, a positive. And, and I'm like, I still really don't enjoy them. And I get so nervous in them, even when I go with, with bullet points and notes and I'm trying to frame something in the most professional, positive and, you know, every takeaway from a course I've been on on how to do this I still just get so nervous and anxious in those moments because I never ever want the person to walk away feeling like it's been a reflection on them as a person uh you know and, and I think it's so hard uh when we are so connected and you know, again coming back to our previous points I never ever ever want anyone to walk away from from a difficult conversation and feel deflated like i always want it to be when it has to you know happen it's a coaching conversation it's uh but it's hard it's so hard you know it's not a, it's never easy conversations hard. to have it's hard i've just finished reading um kim scott's book on radical candor and yeah. it's it's a great book but it tells me exactly how to have these conversations, but I, I still find it really difficult. Still find it hard, yeah, yeah. And and, and look, I'm 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 fortunate. I've not I've never actually had to have too many of them, <laughs> um, but yeah, they're not enjoyable. I think we would all like to just do the enjoyable stuff uh, all day long, uh, but yeah, it's not the nature of things. Sometimes, is there an area, Chris, in your life that you feel like you are um, you're under investing in? Oh, I've got plenty. My, part, my, my partner would probably argue the cooking. Um, but yeah, apparently uh, I'm getting too lazy when it comes to meals because we can't just eat Greek salad every night, apparently. Oh, I think we can. I think can. Um, yeah, I think we can. I'm well and truly in that camp. Um, yeah, it's a really good question. I do. I, you know, I think one that I do struggle with sometimes is actually just reading for enjoyment. I think I, I read so much for work, for PhD, for, you know, even, even just keeping on top of what's happening in the education space, you know, research trends, uh, keeping on top of publications that sometimes when it comes to just picking up a good get lost in another world book, I really struggle because I go, no, 
I should really actually read that article instead. Yeah. I should really read that recent publication yeah. from that organization instead. And and I really do neglect just reading for enjoyment and reading to just yeah immerse myself in a fantasy world. And and when I do, I love it so much. Um, yeah. But I always prioritize other things. I always prioritize things that are more serious uh, and tangible, more tangible results yeah. than just plain good old fun. Yeah. I um, was having a conversation with my wife the other day who's a, um, she did her master's in creative writing. So she, our bookcase used to be full of educational texts and now it's full of amazing fictional texts. And I'm really, I'm really trying to get better at it, but it's yeah. so hard, isn't it? Because I'm used to, these are the dot points. This is what you need to do. And I, I've, I just find it really difficult. Um, yeah, yeah I, I'm actually thinking of getting on the podcast one week to um, to ask her what it's like to be married to a teacher. I just think that would be a <laughs> conversation. Uh, there's piles of research papers. There's just everything. It's all happening. But um, could be an interesting conversation. But um, Oh, absolutely. My partner's favourite thing is to tell everyone that he now knows what pedagogy means. Right. And, uh, and uh, yeah. Okay, and, you and, know what pedagogy yeah, means. No, I'm still, still figuring it out. <laughs> but, the, you know, there's so much that he's learned from. That, being yeah. with an educator and and you know he'll he'll often be the first one as well to tell people that it completely changed his yeah. view of education uh, of educators of schools um you know that, that he had a very particular view which was you know that whole nine to five uh, sorry nine to three monday to friday you know 12 weeks holiday a year and yeah and he said it very quickly changed very quickly and and he now sees education as the most important job in the world is he training to be a teacher yet or haven't quite <laughs> I haven't quite got that far yet yeah he's he's actually in the tech space and um really enjoys the tech space and actually is always trying to tell me how tech could help us with everything in education yeah yeah <laughs> really I, it's really interesting and um, tell me about your PhD. Uh, yeah. oh, um, firstly, how on earth do you find the time? My wife is <laughs> the moment as well, and goodness me, it's intense. So tell me yeah. about how you find the time. Why is this a good thing for you to be doing right now? And what do yeah. you what do you hope to achieve? What sort of questions are you asking? Yeah, absolutely. So it, it really stemmed from where I was at in in my work at the time so i was at the time i was working for for another small not-for-profit that was actually part of the university of melbourne and, and one of the key things that we were doing was connecting educators for professional learning across 23 countries across the asia pacific uh, and we were also connecting young people and 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 having programs for students of all ages um to connect online together with with their teachers and I started to move more and more into this space of the, the power of technology used in a particular way uh, and the potential for it. So, so not necessarily the technology itself, so not the tool, but what we do with it. Um, and, and I got more and more into this and I, I would go down into these rabbit holes of research. And what I found was that I was learning so much that I started thinking, well, hold on a minute. I could get something out of this if I was if I'm doing the work anyway. So started exploring the idea of doing some further study, realized there was nothing that was quite in line with what I was doing and what I was learning. And so I started asking some questions. I was in quite a few networks uh, and I was asking some questions of some some doctors and lecturers. And, and they said, yeah, I think you might have something a little bit niche there. Why don't you think about just doing this under your own steam? Why don't you think about doing a PhD? And I gave it some thought and went, well, why not? I'm doing a lot of this anyway. I'm learning a lot about this in my own time anyway. And yeah, it really has just been driven by a passion for a, a passion for, for education, a passion for this particular topic. And I just found myself in evenings and weekends reading it, reading for enjoyment and learning for enjoyment. And I've gone on this this kind of PhD journey that so far has actually just been really enjoyable and doesn't often feel like I'm doing 
work. Um, it has its moments, like um, you know, ethics paperwork. That's maybe not the most enjoyable part of a, a PhD journey. Um, but getting to talk about it all the time, getting to to learn more about it, getting to to meet other amazing educators, or, or you know, who are doing study in a whole range of areas, just trying to improve uh, and and make tiny little shifts in what we do. Um, and and that's my big hope. My big hope is that I get to the end of this and I discover a way of doing something a little bit differently, or I did I discover hopefully that what I think is a really good approach, there is evidence that it is, um, and that that might inform some practices moving forward and might ultimately make a difference for for some of our young people out there. Um, you know, because if if I'm able to show through this that the, this particular way of connecting online with people from all sorts of different countries is good for us, great. You know, the evidence will then be there, and we can maybe support this for more young people. Um, but if they if it comes back it, that you know actually it's not that great and it's not as effective as I like to think it is, then great. That can also shape how we do things, and that maybe that that's not the right approach. But yeah. unless we do the research, we don't know. Uh, and it, and it, it takes me back to a, a saying that I learned just a little while ago, which is if you don't measure your impact, how do you know that your impact is not negative? Right. And yeah, so I want to know. I don't know if it is, but it almost sounds like something Professor John Hattie would say. <laughs> <laughs> I might have to edit that out. I don't want to falsely attribute something. To it. <laughs> yeah, I don't know where I got it from. I remember just hearing it one time and went, that's so true. It's so true. If we don't know, you know, if we're not measuring and looking for 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 an impact and know how we're going to look for it, how we're going to measure it, how we're going to evaluate it, how do we not know that what we're doing is actually having really negative outcomes? Yeah. And has there been anything, um, Chris, that you have uh, found surprising about your research? Is there anything that you weren't expecting so far that it was either you either right about or you were wrong about or you were just pleasantly surprised yeah there's been a couple of things so far i think one um i've been really surprised at how big this approach is in other parts of the world particularly the northern hemisphere um i had no idea when i set out on this journey that there were actually a lot of people doing this in other parts of the world i thought that that my organization and the work we were doing was pretty unique and pretty original and then i discovered actually it wasn't <laughs> there, was, there was actually massive organizations in the us and europe that were doing this kind of stuff on a massive systemic level with hundreds of thousands of young people and i was like oh and there's us doing it with like 200 and i thought we were <laughs> i thought we were these like game yeah. changers and yeah no we weren't so that was a big surprise and that there was a lot of research already out there but in a very different context it you know it was from europe it was from the northern hemisphere it was from the us it was you know kids in the us talking to kids in europe mm. there was almost no research from the southern hemisphere and none from an Australian context or a Southeast Asian or a Pacific context. So it was really surprising to see that, that there was the these real distinct patterns and trends and the demographics and the locations. Mm. Um, but the other thing that's really, really surprised me is when I was looking into what actually supports teachers and young people in schools to engage in programs like this that connect young people across continents um, to learn from and with each other. I was thinking the, the big barriers were going to be things like, you know, time zones and internet access. And no, looks like some of the biggest barriers are actually just timetabling within a school. Wow. And it's, it's, you know, or like I was thinking it might be the motivation of the school or their particular goals. And, you know, it's not a priority with the, you know, staffing issues. No, no, it's usually a case of the schools want to do it. The teachers want to do it. The kids want to do it. It fits in with the curriculum. It fits in with the goals, but they just can't make it line up with the humanities class when they were planning to maybe do it. Um, and it's usually that kind of thing that ends up becoming the barrier. And it was wow. one of those ones when I started looking into it, I was like, oh, yeah, that's, I mean, you know, 
you're an educator. That that's pretty obvious. You know how that happens. You know why that happens. Didn't think about that one though. <laughs> it's like completely missed that one. Yeah. Yeah. That's that is really really interesting. And how how far along are you in your PhD? And um, I mean, I would love once it's done, I would love to. Yeah see some of the work it sounds really interesting but are you almost there are you at the beginning are you yeah i'm yeah. i'm i probably about oh, a third of the way through at the moment and i'm actually this is a good plug for me i'm actually about to do a series of of data collection soon so i'll actually be putting out a survey in about two months hopefully fingers crossed um so maybe the start of the new academic year uh, i'll be putting out a survey where i'll be looking for for educators all across australia um okay. to just answer a short 10 minute survey on whether they've ever engaged in a program like that have they ever engaged in in a program that's helped connect their kids with kids in other countries or other locations uh and if they have what was it like uh and if they haven't is there any particular reasons? You know, it could be a very quick survey. It could just be a very, uh, very quick, nope, haven't. And because I didn't know what it was and never heard of it or never found the opportunity. But, you know, that in itself gives us information. That that in itself informs and, and will give us some findings. So that please will be coming out, out very soon. Yeah, please reach out. And if there's any way that I can get the word out, it would be a, um, a privilege. It sounds like it's Thank um, you. really, really important work. And Chris, I... I do want to be respectful of your time and I always find we tend to do a round two at some point. So uh, <laughs> the invitation has been thrown out there um, for you to do so. But um, I do want to be respectful of your time. I'm aware it is a weeknight and it's coming up to nine o'clock at night. Um, and I'm sure you've got journal articles to read or just you just need to have a rest and switch off. But um, I do just want to ask you a couple uh, more questions. And the first one if you were building a school system um, from the ground up, uh, what would be some of the essential elements that you would love to see kind of built into it, the DNA of the school? Big question. It's a big question. That's a whole podcast right there. Yeah, it's a big question. What really, really matters? The kids. Yeah. I'd start with the kids. I get the I get I get the, the the young people in a room and ask them, yeah, what do you want? I love that. what do you want? What do you need? Yeah, you know, and and I think that would really drive a lot of the decisions. Uh, you know, listening to our young people and 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 yeah, look, maybe they don't know much about pedagogy yet, <laughs> but kids are kids know themselves they know they go to you know six different classrooms every day with six different teachers you know think about a high school setting and they sit through multiple lessons every term they know for them what engages them they know for them what works well they know what doesn't engage them they know what a positive relationship looks like with others with their teachers i think if we started there that would really shape a lot it, it makes me think of how different my experience of school would have been like and also yourself if someone had actually just said what do you want what do you want what do you need how can i help you i think about that would that would just do so much in terms of mental health and well-being and engagement um i think it's really really beautiful i the first ever conversation i had on this podcast was with a hero of mine called um richard gerver um who is doing some amazing work in the uk very close to where i grew up and he said um we wanted to make school like disneyland because you never have any attendance problems at disneyland people just want to go and he used to, um, once again, I'm not plugging the episodes, but it's well worth listening to that for those people that are listening to our conversation. Yeah. About the importance of creating a school that kids really just wanted to be at. Um, yeah. yeah. Like, and I, I, 
And I think that's a, that's a great place to start. And I, I mean, we know things can happen. We know there can be there can be challenges in individuals' lives. There can be there can be trauma. There can be you know hurdles and, and barriers that we need to overcome. But I think even if we just started with intentionally designing our spaces where there are they are places that kids can get up and get excited to come to and want to be there we're already overcoming a huge number of barriers and hurdles um and yeah it doesn't that's not going to solve everything but it's a good place to start um yeah and if we were um if we were sitting down in one of the great hipster cafes in (laughs) in melbourne and i was asked and i was just about to step into a classroom for the first time and we were having a coffee um, what short piece of advice would you give me for a, a an amazing career and a wonderful profession? Oh, yeah, it's a really good question. I think I think the thing I've always done is be myself. I've I've done I've done the classrooms where I've tried to be the the stony faced till Christmas teacher, and I've you know i've i've tried to follow particular approaches or not show too much of my personality and maybe hold it back a little bit kids no kids no like you said you know you use the word authentic young young people they know when you're being authentic and you're being real with them and if you go in there and you be authentic with them you be yourself you go in open-minded and wanting to have a positive relationship and build a culture that is built on positive relationships walking that journey with them and alongside them you know again i think that goes a long way and we all know you know for every approach we take for whether we write our learning intentions up on the board or we use particular visual cues or whatever none of that matters if we don't have good relationships yeah Yeah. i i couldn't agree more and and chris um it has been an absolute joy uh to have this conversation with you and um i am in awe of the the work that you're doing at the McKillop Institute and also just your passion and your excitement for a wonderful profession. And um, it is, your journey is so inspiring to see where you've come from and how you've turned something which could potentially have not worked out very well into a a passion that is really transforming the lives of of, of children, uh, not only within our country, but also much more broadly. So Thank you so much for taking the time. It's been an absolute joy um, to speak with you. Um, and thank you for all that you're investing into a wonderful profession. It's a, a huge privilege to have had this conversation with you this evening. Thank you, Matthew. It's, it's been so lovely to be here and and just to be able to share a, a tiny bit about myself and, and my journey. And if anyone wants to reach out and have a conversation or, or catch up and have a coffee, I, you know, sure you've guessed from my responses i'm very open to that i'm always open to conversation so you know you're more than welcome to find me on linkedin or twitter etc and yeah we'd love to catch up with anyone and i'll make sure chris i put all of the links um to the things we've talked about in the show notes and um, thank you i look forward to doing a, a round two with you at some point thanks for your time thanks matthew Thank you for taking the time to listen to the Art of Teaching podcast today. I hope that you, like me, got some valuable insights out of our discussions. For show notes, please visit theartofteachingpodcast.com. And I've also created a private Facebook group where we continue the discussion there. The link will be in the show notes. Thanks again for listening and can't wait to see you for next week's episode.